Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. I thank my God every time I remember you, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That is Philippians 1 verses 3 and 6. I am your host, Sandra Flack. Thank you for joining us today for this 10th bonus episode in our series, what every adoptive and foster parent needs to know about trauma, FASD, and adverse childhood experiences with our special guest, Dr. Jared Brown. Uh, This series covers important topics for all of us foster, adoptive, and kinship caregivers. I recommend you take notes during these episodes. Uh, If you don't have a notebook or a pen handy, feel free to pause Go find one and then come back and listen through the podcast. Um, Or you can just listen straight through and then listen a second time with the notebook uh, to take some notes to make sure you don't miss anything. I know there's so much uh, content here. Dr. Jared Brown just packs in a whole bunch of information. So it's really helpful um, to take some notes so you can really reflect on it later. I know I've been scribbling away fiercely as he... um, talks. So um, I know you'll, I know you will want to take some notes too. Now the regular episodes of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast drop in your inbox on Mondays. This series with Dr. Brown, these are bonus episodes that will be dropping on Fridays. So if you, if you haven't listened to all of them, this is the 10th one. There's a whole bunch. Um, I highly recommend you go back and even start with the first one. Uh, just to really kind of set the foundation for uh, these bonus episodes. But even if you just listen to one here and there, you're going to learn some amazing information, get some uh, strategies that you can use, some things that you could be doing to help your kids, um, help your family. And uh, I know that you're going to learn a lot. So make sure you check them all out. And if you are not yet a subscriber to this podcast, I would sincerely appreciate it if you would take a moment and subscribe and even leave a review. It is super simple. And when you do, it makes a huge impact. When listeners subscribe, it helps other adoptive foster and kinship caregivers find us. And we believe this podcast is a vital resource for our parenting journey. So I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe. Also, uh, if you find this show to be an encouragement, you want to give us some feedback Um, just maybe there's a topic that you want us to cover, whether it be in the bonus episode or the regular episodes, feel free to reach out. Um, You can reach out to me at Sandra Flack at justicefororphansny.org or through the ministry website, justicefororphansny.org. Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope Podcast and Sandra Flack of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey Podcast would like to invite you to join their Hope for the FASD Journey, a virtual support community for parents and caregivers raising individuals with an FASD, diagnosed or not. 
This faith-based community includes an online bi-monthly support group, a monthly VIP conversation, and a private Facebook group which includes a video devotional from Natalie and Sandra every Saturday. To register, visit justicefororphansny.org forward slash training forward slash F-A-S-D. Now to our guest. Jared Brown, PhD, is an assistant professor for Concordia University, St. Paul, Minnesota. Jared has also been employed with Pathways Counseling Center in St. Paul for the past 17 years. Pathways provides programs and services benefiting individuals impacted by mental illness and addictions. Jared is also the founder and CEO of the American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies and the editor-in-chief of Forensic Scholars Today. Jared has completed four separate master's degree programs and holds graduate, graduate certificates in autism spectrum disorder, other health disabilities, and traumatic brain injuries. Jared is also certified as a youth fire setting prevention intervention specialist and anger resolution therapist, a thinking for a change facilitator, an FASD trainer, and an autism specialist, and a mental health integrative medicine provider. He's got all those credentials and is offering us a, a, a vast wealth of information to help us navigate this journey. Please welcome Dr. Jared Brown. Hey, Jared, welcome back. Sandra, thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. This is a true honor to keep talking to your audience. Well, I'm, I'm grateful to have you back for another bonus episode. Your work and research and information that you've been providing for us, I believe, is so important for parents and caregivers. I've been learning a ton, and I know that our listeners are as well. These are some of our best listened to or most listened to um, episodes, so I'm thrilled to be able to really provide them as a resource for our listeners. So thank you. I truly you appreciate for, that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thank you for being for making yourself available for so many of these episodes. Um, last week, you shared about metacognition, the boss of the boss of the brain. Uh, and today, we're going to discuss trauma and working memory. And I know that memory problems are a primary characteristic of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. But what exactly is working memory? Would you define that for us? Yep. So it's, it's different than like long-term memory or episodic memory or autobiographical memory. Memory is a big, big topic. Working memory falls under the umbrella of executive functions. One of the main components of executive function that's often talked about in this research literature. Think, think of it as your brain's post-it note. That comes up a lot. I did not come up with that. That comes up in this research literature a lot where some folks call it your brain's post-it note or like an active mental workspace. So give you an example. I'm going to the grocery store. I forget my list at home. I know that there are like five things that I need to get. And I can hold that in my working memory because maybe I'm saying it out loud. I got to get eggs. I got to get milk and all that stuff. Then you go to the store, and if your working memory is doing what it's supposed to, you probably won't forget what you needed to, to purchase. Somebody that has FASD or someone that might have had a brain injury or a neurocognitive impairment or extensive trauma 
may not be able to hold a lot of things in their working memory. So they're forgetful in the short term. That's one reason why multitasking is a very bad thing for people who have like compromised brains. There are all kinds of things that can throw our working memory off that I'll talk about today. One of them, sleep. If we're just chronically sleep deprived, even if we don't have a brain that has extensive like impairments, our working memory may not be as effective as it, it should be. So keep in mind, it has a limited capacity. So when working memory is doing what it's supposed to do, we might be only able to hold a handful of pieces of information. Now, there's outliers there. There are some people that could probably hold a lot of things in their working memory. For me personally, I don't like to hold a lot of things there because I know I'm going to forget. And I've learned that enough over the years. What do I do about that? How do I compensate for that? I write it down. Taking things off your working memory can actually free up more space for a lot of other things in your brain. And one tip is just writing things down. It's There's a lot of things going on with working memory. There's a lot of different mental tasks at play. So let's say if metacognition is off, that can oftentimes impact working memory and vice versa. If we're dealing with self-regulation deficits, our working memory may be off. So it's not like one area is impacted and it doesn't trickle down to influence another one. A lot of cognitive activities going on with working memory. So really think of it as a powerful like cognitive skill. And at the core of working memory, a couple questions you always want to ask yourself. What is your ability or whoever you're thinking about's ability to remember information? Are they just chronically forgetful? You say one, you say something to them within a second or two, it's gone. They, they just can't hold it in that working memory. What's their ability to process that information then once it's sitting in their working memory? How do they like manipulate that information in their brain in a good way? The example of like me forgetting my list at home, I'm using my working memory without the list and I'm manipulating that and I'm keeping it in my working memory by maybe saying it out loud. And then how do I put it into action? Well, I get the grocery cart and I go around the, the grocery store and pick up the things I need. That That's one example of many. And then how it's really think of it too as the integration, the process, and the ability to remember information. It's not information I'm referring to like in your long-term memory, like when was your what first child born? When were you married? That's accessing memory from the past. This is more kind of in the immediate. So think about this. If you have a child or an adult who has working memory deficits, what could that look like that can really get in the way of comprehension? So if it's a, a child or a teenager in a K through 12 setting and they have undiagnosed working memory deficits, it is oftentimes going to look like a learning disability. So they're gonna have more comprehension deficits. So to the teacher who probably doesn't know what this topic even is in most cases, they may think that that child or teenager is either not paying attention or is being lazy, just doesn't care, isn't taking things seriously. 
when in fact it these issues may be directly impacted by like brain-based impairments. Now I'm not saying they might not also have a learning disability because working memory deficits co-occur with multiple disorders and I'll talk about a few of them today. But it can really trickle down, impact that person's ability to learn information because if you can't retain information that well in your short, short, short-term memory, how does that information ever get integrated into long-term memory where then if that doesn't happen, you're more prone to making mistakes, the same mistakes over and over and over again. What happens then, a caregiver who doesn't know about this, they're going to get very frustrated and think, why is why is my child never paying attention to me? I just taught them yesterday to do this. And be, be aware that frustration and stress can make this stuff worse, obviously. Decision-making is impacted by this. Their ability to reason. Abstract thinking. We've talked about that a few times in this series. Abstract thinking, abstract reasoning relates to cause and effect, planning for the future, seeing the gray in areas. People that are very black and white thinking struggle with abstract reasoning. And it also relates to their ability to read because if someone reads and they can never retain any sentence, that person may start getting very frustrated and just give up on reading. We know how important it is to, for brain development for a child to, to be read to and then start reading. So reading is impacted by this and associations between figures and words. So things can get mixed up with mathematics, looking at like, puzzles, looking at a picture storybook and like just looking at graphs and charts and maps, all of these things can be impacted. Before I go deeper into this, Sandra, any, any thoughts? Yeah, I, I know you started bringing up the school example and that's right away where my mind jumped to is homework assignments and reading comprehension and being able to know what to do that the teacher, the, the directions the teacher just handed out or gave out or spoke. Um, it seems like these individuals would really have a hard time uh, with that and, and could maybe find themselves in trouble a lot. I know oftentimes we say that FASD is in, an invisible disability, so it doesn't look like on the outward that there is something going on. Um, but yet then there's all these things that the things really that we've been talking about, the executive function things, um, uh, impulse control issues with the, the self-regulation, um, all of the episodes basically that we've been that we've been talking about and including this one, because I can see where this in the day to day comes into play with especially kids in school, adults at work, um, this would really cause a lot of challenges and trouble for the individual. Stress, shame. Why do I say that? Because if this child or teenager or adult has working memory deficits and they have no clue what that even is, they've never been assessed they're going to start thinking in a lot of cases, I'm not saying every case, that they're stupid, that those messages might start playing in their mind. I'm just not smart. Why even try? Shame can absolutely be amplified when we're talking about this. Again, there's a lot of other things at play here too. If someone can't memorize facts, 
that's partially a working memory problem. So if you're asking your child or teenager to memorize the states or numbers or letters, whatever, and they just can't seem to get it, that's a red flag indicator. If they have a real difficult time, like linking cause and effect and sticking with like directions, even just like making chocolate chip cookies and following a recipe, working memory is at play there. Eventually, most people, let's say, let's just use the the chocolate chip recipe, cookie recipe. You do it a few times, you got it down and you don't need to look at the recipe anymore because you've done it. If you don't have good working memory, how does that repetition by doing something ever get integrated into the long-term memory then? And how do you capitalize and build on that? Some other things you might see with some working memory problems is a lot of error proneness where they have a tendency to make the same mistakes over and over and then they have poor self-checking abilities. So they, they have a hard time detecting when they're even making those errors. It can also get in the way of that person remembering different procedures and rules and regulations and policies and things like that. So that can be very detrimental if someone's trying to get a job as they get older too or navigate any kind of school, college or high school, whatever it is. If the person has a tendency too to have a lot of blank staring on their face, where they maybe lose train of thought mid-sentence. So they were called on in the classroom to answer a question. Within a few seconds, they have the blank stare. They completely lost track of what the question even was. That could be a working memory deficit. That I mean, there are, there are many more red flag indicators to be on the lookout for, but I can tell you this with certainty. If you have a child who has fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, or some sort of other neurodevelopmental disorder, or even a neurocognitive impairment, maybe from a brain injury or extensive prenatal or early life trauma, the research leads to the fact that working memory deficits are very common in these populations. It's also very common among people with language disorders. So we need to be aware of that too. So if someone has a speech language communication kind of impairment or full-blown disorder, have they ever been screened for working memory? dyslexia and working memory co-occur a lot. So if you're working with someone that has dyslexia or undiagnosed dyslexia, people with ADHD shown to be much higher, people with major depressive disorders, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, autism, the list goes on. Those are just some of the ones that come up in this research literature more consistently to show that this is a real, real issue. Before I jump into like some FASD stuff on this too, any any other thoughts or observations? Yeah, I mean, this, this is, I feel like in a lot of the things that you're saying describe, you know, two or more of my kids who uh, two are diagnosed with uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. So um, I can see where this comes into play and just you know, from the time they get up in the morning and remembering the routine, right, to get all of the steps to get ready to go to school in the morning, or a, an adult or a, a, a young adult or a person with an older person with an FASD, um, you know, just the steps to go to work, the procedures to follow at work or at school, um, just 
it's just, it affects every single part of daily life. So um, I just wanted to, to add that observation because I feel like, you know, anybody listening who has a child with an FASD diagnosed or not, uh, or in prenatal trauma, um, this is going to sound very familiar because I feel like you're describing some of my kids, um, you know, the world I live in. But um, Jared, so yeah, tell us a little bit more, go a little bit deeper into the FASD piece. So if you look at FASD and working memory specifically, like if you went online and went to Google Scholar and typed that in, you're going to find a good handful of studies that have looked at this. Now, keep in mind, most of these studies have been focused on children and adolescents. So if you have an adult child, there's less literature. There is still some. Obviously, it's not going to go away without proper interventions, and it might not ever go away because of the brain damage caused by prenatal alcohol exposure, but there are things we can do to make it better. But this literature says it's common. It's a core deficit. It absolutely gets in the way of academic performance. It could be a factor in, in some instances of visual spatial deficits. So depth perception, using a hammer effectively on a job, scissors, walking across the street and being able to tell if the car is 20 feet from you or, or two blocks away. Um, this can visual spatial impairments can also have a huge impact on that person just riding a bicycle or playing organized sports. And we know, unfortunately, that there's a high percentage of people with FASD who do come into contact with the criminal justice system at some point in their life for a variety of reasons. I'm not saying just perpetration, but we know victimization, unfortunately, is is very high among people who've been exposed to alcohol in utero. This could be a factor as to why some people come involved in the criminal justice system. It's not the only factor. It may not even be a direct factor. It could be an indirect factor. The reasons for that are many and varied, but I'll give you one reason. Let's say you have someone with FASD working memory issues and consistently forgets rules and regulations, and they engage in some sort of behavior that they think is appropriate when, in fact, they're breaking the law. Another example could be maybe you have someone with FASD who's had an extensive trauma history on top of the prenatal alcohol exposure. They also have working memory deficits. They feel shame. They feel guilt. They think that they don't do well in school. They internalize all this. They start turning to drugs and alcohol. They start associating with people that might not have their best intentions in mind. Everything I'm saying here, Sandra, these are examples of cases I've consulted on. I can give you a million examples of how this could be a factor in some cases. But if it's FASD, if it's any disorder, again, working memory, when it is not working properly, they're going to have a much more difficult time with focused attention. We know ADHD is the most common co-occurring disorder with FASD in general. It, it it's probably going to be like near 100% certainty if you have, if you're working with someone with FASD and has co-occurring ADHD, they're going to have working memory deficits. Mental rehearsal can absolutely be impacted by this. I mental rehearse all the time when I'm giving presentations. I kind of say things out loud or think about in my mind and kind of rehearse it. When it's not working, we may not have that capability to practice, problem solve 
kind of thinking aloud and just helping us kind of make sense of things. It gets in the way of our planning and our organization. And our creative thinking can be impacted by working memory deficits. And all of those other things I spoke about before with learning, we need to take into account. And at the core of a goal plan, if you are a family working with a therapist, a social worker, a case manager, whatever the professional is, they're, they're going to be developing some sort of goal plan or intervention plan to target. It, at the core of goal planning is executive function and working memory and inhibition and cognitive flexibility. If you don't modify the goal plan to take into account they have FASD and working memory deficits and maybe trauma, that goal plan is highly likely not to work. I see this all the time. And this is a big reason why different like professionals and organizations will reach out to me because whatever they're doing, it doesn't seem to be working. So they reach out because they want help with like modifying their goal plan or intervention plan through an FASD lens. And almost every time I try to at least educate them about working memory because it, it does come up all the time. Wow. Yeah. One, and I want to get to that in a second, but one thing that when, when you mentioned the depth, depth perception um, and, and uh, visual spatial impairment. Now my youngest son we discovered had um, had a problem with that and had he actually went to vision therapy for about a year, which did improve. Um, he had uh, possibly a, a co-concurring um, problem with one of his, he ended up having an MRI or a CAT scan um, and was determined that one of his, the optic nerve in his left eye is smaller than a normal optic nerve and a little bit shaped differently. So I contribute that like there's no, I don't have anything concrete, but you know, FASD always filtering everything through that lens. I, I believe that it has something to do with, with that a, a comorbidity, but um, you know, the a whole year of vision therapy did help. Um, but could that be, I mean, I know you can't diagnose anything here, but, um, you know, that could very well be connected to the poor working memory and the FASD. I think there's a lot of things, yeah, interconnected here. Yes. And there are three cases that come to mind I consulted on where I think visual spatial impairment was a big factor. One client or one case I remembered, the person was an adult. I can't say certain she had FASD, but she had all the history and everything, all the symptoms. She walked across the street, looked both ways, and got hit by a car. She had bad depth perception because she thought the car was a couple blocks away when, in fact, it was 20 feet away. So this was a case I consulted on. Two other cases, and again, this is anecdotal. I wonder if there's any connection here. This would be a good research study for someone to take a look at. I'm noticing more and more cases where the adult with FASD has wiped out on a bike at some point, a pedal bike, and has sustained a head injury by hitting their head on the ground. There's a couple cases where they're not related, where this was a factor, and I wonder if they're misjudging distance. And then 
their bike and they're flipping over and they hit their head. I, I hear this more and more. I don't know if that is a connection, but I, I feel in something here and I don't know what it is yet, but I'm on the lookout. Yeah. <laughs> very, very interesting. Right. We discovered it because I noticed that when, when teaching my son to read, um, he could, and we, and we, we didn't, we weren't teaching him to read at five or even six because he, he had a significant delay. Um, but he probably was maybe eight or nine. And I realized it, he wouldn't look at the, I, I wrote everything in big letters on a whiteboard and, um, trying to, trying to get, he could read individual words, but when it came to reading in a sentence, I couldn't get him to look at the sentence long enough to get through a short sentence, you know, like the cat sat on a log. He would look at the first word or two, then he'd have to look away. Then I'd have to get him to look back. And it just, it would take forever to get through a simple sentence. But yet if I spelled the word out loud, he knew it immediately. He just didn't want to look at it. Um, so after talking to a couple professionals, they, they kind of said, it sounds like a visual, like a tracking problem, um, which is what got us to the vision therapist, which um, you know, clearly was determined he does have a, did have um, that problem. And after a year of them working, and it was like, I liken it to occupational therapy for the eyes. There was a lot of physical activities um, that he had to do with his body and his eyes. And really, he made huge progress to where now he can, he can read a sentence, he can make it all the way through the sentences. Um, but it took a long time to train his eyes to be able to do that. So very interesting, right? The the um, the connections here, um, interesting, very interesting. Um, so, I, what do we do? I don't want to jump ahead, but if you're if you're at a a, a, a point in the conversation where we can kind of pivot to, you know, if if you're a parent or caregiver of an individual prenatally exposed, there's trauma, um, whether they're diagnosed with FA, an FASD or not, what can parents and caregivers do to help our kids? navigate this because clearly there's problems in school there's going to be problems as they as they get older and they're getting you know trying to get employment um in the adult world what what um what can we do to help our kids with this so i mentioned before adhd number one co-occurring disorder with fasd and if we take fasd out of this equation low working memory capacity has been shown to be more common in people with ADHD. So one area, target the ADHD, target the attention. Maybe it's some attentional training, work with a specialist who understands that. If the person is dealing with any drug or alcohol problems, low working memory capacity has been shown to be much more common among people who use drug and alcohol problems, and it could be potentially one risk factor of many that can contribute to addictive behavior. It's also been shown to be a factor in some cases of childhood conduct problems and adult antisocial behavior. So if you notice the individual starting to engage in really problematic behaviors, target those areas as well. Low levels of self-control and low levels of working memory pretty much co-occur majority of the time. So especially if we're talking FASD population and people with extensive trauma history. So target self-regulation, self-regulation training, a lot of interventions you can find online, workbooks, different counselors, therapists would probably have some training in that. 
if you are working, if it's a professional listening to this, we really need to be aware of how working memory issues could get in the way of that person reporting accurate information to that therapist, to the medical doctor, to the psychiatrist, whoever's doing an interview or an assessment or an evaluation, because working memory can really impact that person's ability to recall information accurately and encode it. They may be less coherent and less consistent in an interview being asked questions. So fact check, verify, work with collateral sources. Working memory and rumination have also been shown to co-occur. So if someone's dealing with rumination, work with someone who understands rumination. There's actually a lot of different interventions that are available to help people reduce rumination. There's actually something called cognitive behavioral therapy for rumination. The very nature of getting better sleep has been shown to reduce rumination and improve working memory. All of these things, again, are very, very interconnected. From an FASD lens, and you can use this with any population. Again, I gave the example of I know I, I can't hold a ton of information in my working memory. I've learned I got to write it down. If I don't take notes or put it in a calendar right away, I forget. Now, for some people that BSD, the very nature of being able to listen and write a note and put it in a calendar can be very tricky. So take that into account. Maybe writing it down for them a few times, getting a rhythm down. If you're presenting large chunks of information to someone with working memory deficits, and in particular, someone that has FASD, that's probably going to overwhelm their working memory very quickly. And once working memory is overwhelmed, this can exacerbate self-regulation and self-control issues, as well as more frustration, irritability, it can really contribute to sensory overload, sensory processing issues. So maybe you're also working with a sensory processing specialist who understands these things. So chunk information out. Keep it simple. Don't multitask. If you give verbal instructions, maybe the person does well with that. Maybe they don't. Pair the verbal instructions with written instructions. Be aware of their vocabulary and their comprehension and their language abilities and make sure you're, you're using language that is very concrete and familiar to that particular individual. Because again, let's say you're working with someone who has FASD who's 18 years old chronologically, do they have a vocabulary of a 9-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old? Take that into account. And then just really providing those visual cues, post-it notes, those kind of things can be very helpful. Taking FASD out of the equation, and this is not necessarily just for FASD, and this is not medical advice, talk to your healthcare provider. But in this literature too, there are a lot of things that have been shown to help improve cognitive communication abilities. But mindfulness meditation has been shown to be helpful for some populations. Yoga, deep breathing, exercise, brain stimulation techniques, music therapy. These are things that have been shown in like the general literature. Now, do these work for people with FASD? 
Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It's trial and error, obviously. Regardless of the person you're working with, especially if it's a special needs population and they have trauma in their history and working memory deficits, utilizing language again that's going to be very direct, concrete, and simple and try to avoid like sarcasm and, and things like it's raining cats and dogs outside. Those abstract concepts can be very, very tricky. Be aware too, if you're asking very like forced choice questions, true, false, yes, no. We know this population is also prone to confabulate and be more suggestible. Ask more open-ended questions, fact check, verify, keep the pace of the interview or the conversation slower in some cases because Sandra I think we're talking about information processing deficits coming up at some point soon too but a lot of times someone with these issues they're going to have slower processing speed so the more words you say to them that can overwhelm them but it's not just the words take a look around do a 360 of your room or your office wall clutter bright lights cologne, perfume, all of these things that can be very stimulating to someone can overwhelm the senses quite quickly and put even more pressure on their working memory. The more and more pressure that's on that working memory, think of it as like a dam holding back the water in the river or the lake or whatever it is, that more and more pressure, eventually it's going to put more pressure on it. Could it crumble at one point? All this emotion comes flying out yelling, screaming, crying, running away, elopement behaviors. You might see that in some cases if that person becomes so overwhelmed. And just be aware too of just becoming FASD-informed, trauma-informed, attachment-informed. And again, I talk about sleep all the time. If, if sleep is off, a lot of these things are only exacerbated. So just some things to think about. Sandra, anything else you want me to talk about with interventions? Those would be just a few to think about. Yeah, I was I was furiously taking notes as I always do and wanted to make sure my microphone was on because I just sneezed a few minutes ago. But um, a couple of things when it came, I know with writing lists, because you brought this up that, um, you know, we write a list so we don't forget our items when we go to the grocery store or Kids should be writing a list at school of their homework so they don't forget assignments, that type of thing. But I know for my boys, uh, writing a list is just not something that they're they, that they can do. They're not good at just sitting down and writing those. Um, you know, writing out a list is, is difficult. Pulling out the proper information to be able to take short notes to make a list um, difficult. So I know um, using the cell phone can be a great. Uh, resource, a great tool, because we can keep lists on our phone, we can speak into them and do the audio, um, you know, rather than typing it in. I know my boys, when they send text messaging, text messages, they talk to text, right? So you can talk to take notes, they do that a lot. Um, so, so that's another way to do it, then they have to be able to read, right, read those notes. So that can be challenging, but definitely um, some, uh, some gadgets to help with that. Um, certainly very important. Uh, and the visual cues, having having the list of the steps for getting ready to, for school in the morning, um, having that list of homework, 
Uh, I know when it came to notes in class on my boys' IEPs, uh, it, it, was, it says on there that they're to be provided the notes so that they weren't expected to sit and take the notes during class, but they were actually given the notes. So they had the notes, complete notes to take home. Um, things like that, very, very helpful. Um, I know that this, is a, this has been a great topic um, that we've been talking about. So I greatly appreciate that because I can see how this really affects, there's just so much, right, that we can do. Um, what else did you want to add, Dr. Brown? Well, I think if you have a child or adult with FASD and you're not taking into account working memory, we're, we're missing something for sure. Getting an evaluation, learning about this topic, Maybe it's consulting with a working memory or an executive functioning coach, really strengthening the working memory as much as humanly possible. Learning about this for your family, very helpful. Now, however, what happens if the school or the job that the person is working at doesn't understand this, which a lot of times, obviously, they don't. They're not going to, especially in a job. The school may have some social workers, school psychologists, something like that, that probably has some understanding of working memory, but how many of them truly understand FASD and working memory and trauma at the same time? If you have like an IEP meeting or whatever kind of meeting from an educational lens, making sure that team, this is just my opinion, becomes informed about these topics because if they're not, the goal plan, the education plan may be developed in a way that is not taking into account their working memory, their trauma histories, their sleep, all these things we're talking about. And it does get very tricky and complicated. And sometimes people say, we just don't have the time, the money, the resources. We, we can do better, I think, with these things. A lot of this, you can, there's so many resources online. You can hire a trainer to come in and give a training or a consultant to look at records and give feedback through the FASD lens. It really does make a difference if you become FASD informed and incorporate working memory into it as well, amongst a number of other topics. Yeah, I would definitely say I can see where this comes into play. And I actually can remember way back um, the first child that came into our home that we eventually adopted. Um, I remember issuing her consequences constantly because she would forget her homework. She either would forget the notebook the teacher required all the kids to have that you would write down your homework assignments on, or she would forget the homework assignment. Um, just it was chronic. And I was always issuing consequences to try to teach her to remember uh, that she needed to bring her homework home and the notebook home with the list of things to do. Um, but, you know, now I know that there was, I mean, I know there was definitely trauma, but I also suspect prenatal exposure to alcohol. So um, talk to us a little bit about those things when, you know, that seems to be a natural thing, right, in parenting or, you know, at school to issue those consequences for chronic forgetting of the homework, right? So is there, we can't really discipline or consequence the memory to improve, right? Well, if you are seeing these patterns, seeking out a assessment would probably be a good thing to find out what's going on. Because if we're noticing these same patterns over and over again, and we're doing the same approach, the same intervention, the same strategy, and we're having the exact same outcome, we probably need to tweak something. 
And without a good assessment, how, we're flying in the dark. Is it working memory? Is it cognitive flexibility? Is it inhibition? Is it a trauma? Could it be some metabolic issue, some neurochemistry that's off? If you're not taking this in these things into account and we're not tweaking it, things are going to be missed. And if it's missed and if the person consistently goes through life then where these things happen over and over again, they're going to start becoming frustrated, dysregulated. They may start pulling away from people. They may have learned helplessness that sets in and they, they might even have the message, why even bother? Nobody else believes in me. They may always feel like people are being very critical of them and judging them when in fact, could it be an undiagnosed learning disability? Could it be dyslexia? Could it be FASD undiagnosed? Seek deeper answers because if you're noticing trends, patterns, behaviors that just don't seem to be adding up and you're trying everything that's recommended for best practices and child development and nothing seems to be sticking or working, go deeper. Something is being missed. And if we can find that answer, and it may not just be one answer, it could be a host of things going on. The more answers we can have, the more empowerment we can have, the more informed we are, and then we can be a, even a better advocate when the child or the adult goes to the doctor, to school, to the job. And if things can be tweaked, to match their brain-based capacities, I think we're going to see much better outcomes for this population. Well, I totally agree. And I, I, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And 22 plus years ago, I had no idea. And I just looked at it from a moral lens, really, like you're being disobedient. Uh, you're not following through. We're going to issue consequences to help you remember next time to bring your homework home, remember next time to do your homework. I had no idea that there could have been FASD, of course, and I didn't know the impact that trauma had on an, on a child and an individual either. So um, that's why I'm just so grateful that we're able to have these conversations to really enlighten our audience so that we all can learn so that we can set our expectations accordingly as parents and caregivers and seek those answers and not just say, you know, this child is lazy or this child is on purpose not doing their homework or on purpose leaving it at school, all of those things, because it really does come down to um, the brain and we really need to be educated on this. So I'm grateful, Dr. Brown, for all of your input on this and, um, you know, as always, you provide an abundant amount of information and our listeners can always play this episode uh, back again, catch anything that um, they missed because we do that you offer so much, um, you know, and, and sometimes we just need to hear it a second time to catch it all, even when you, and even when we're taking notes like crazy, like I've been doing. But um, as we wrap up, Jared, what about, can you give us the top three? I always like to ask for the top three, because if the, if a parent or a caregiver is just listening while they're driving and they can't take notes, you know, if there's just three things they could remember to be able to start to do. Um, and then of course I'll encourage them to go back and listen and, and take those notes down. Um, but top three things that parents and caregivers can start doing today to help our kids improve working memory. Better sleep. 
stress management helping reduce stress, conflict, and any kind of conflict, worry, stress that's going on, uncertainty, getting that down. Obviously, we live in an uncertain world. I think that there's a lot of stress everywhere. And be patient. Slow down. Take the time. People with working memory issues need more time. And that goes hand in hand with the information processing that we're going to be talking about at another time. So those would just be three of many. Yeah. I mean, and, and you offered so many. So I do encourage our listeners to uh, listen again through a second time, maybe have a dedicated notebook or two for all of these bonus episodes, because you're, there's just so much that you're teaching us so much for us to learn. And Dr. Brown, once again, thank you for, you know, yet again, breaking down another vital subject for us today. Um, and I do look forward to next week. I believe we're going to be talking about cognitive flexibility. Is that the one that's up next? I believe so. So that all of these things we're talking about are interconnected. And that's why we're talking about it. You can't study one without the other, in my opinion. So if you listen to all of these in this series, it's really hopefully going to connect the dots for you. And you're going to be in a much better position to understand why people do the things they do when you can learn about these things. Absolutely. I've been finding that this is invaluable information. So Jared, thank you so much again for sharing your expertise with us today. You're welcome. Thank you again for having me back. Wow. Thank you for listening for uh, to this special series with Dr. Jared Brown. Um, I'm just, just so grateful for these bonus episodes. I know I've been learning so much. I trust that you are too. And today's topic, working memory, such an important topic for us parents and caregivers to understand, um, you know, that it just affects everything, especially if our children have um, prenatal exposure to alcohol, if they have, um, you know, whether they have had an FASD, uh, a diagnosis of FAS or FAE, any of those things, or whether you just suspect it, um, if they've got trauma history, this is such vital information for us to, to learn and to understand and just great points for us to focus on so that we really are able to support our kids well. Uh, be sure to join us next week when we talk about cognitive flexibility, uh, what it is and how trauma and FASD affect it and how it impacts our kids. And really, I just love how all of these topics have been so interconnected um, one with each other. So I hope you, if you haven't listened to all of them, today's episode again was an episode 10 out of this bonus series. I hope you go back and listen to the ones that you've missed. Um, dedicate a notebook or two or get one of those big, you know, five subject notebooks <laughs> to write notes um, as you go, because you're just going to find that um, you're going to learn a wealth of information that you're going to want to apply. There's great tips and and things in there, you know, even just the sleep, right? How important is sleep? And it's like, we know that, but yet hearing it here, we're reminded of how important that is. And yet at the same time, I know that sleep is really difficult for individuals with an FASD um, and with trauma. Sleep is difficult, but that lack of sleep also contributes to these challenges that our kids have with um, working memory and impulse control, self-regulation, all of those things are affected um, with, you know, with, you know, lack of sleep just exacerbates the situation. So great 
key points here that we are learning. Remember, our regular episodes drop on Mondays. Be sure to catch those along with these bonus episodes. Um, just It's just a wealth of information, and I'm so thrilled to be able to provide that for you. If you have a question for me or for Dr. Brown, something you want us to talk about, um, a question that you have that you'd like answered, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, you can contact me, Sandra Flack, at justicefororphansny.org. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, again, please let us know by subscribing and let your fellow adoptive and fostering friends know about this podcast so that they can listen and be encouraged and equipped too. Uh, in addition to our uh, Hope for the FASD Journey virtual support community, um, which you heard about at the top of the show, uh, we do offer an introduction to FASD training. Uh, it's an online or in-person uh, uh, workshop. I have created a 90-minute training, and it really is to introduce you to FASD, kind of learn a little bit more about it. I know, like I said before on this show, when my boys got a diagnosis of FAS, fetal alcohol syndrome, we really were giving no resources. Um, just a little advice to focus on life skills and have a nice day. So we really, really want to make sure that you are uh, getting the resources that you need. So on October 27th, we are offering an online FASD workshop. It's a 90-minute workshop. You can check out and register for the workshop on our website. Um, and in the coming months, we're going to be adding our FACETS workshops um, as I become a facilitator of the FACETS neurobehavioral model. You can find it all at justicefororphansny.org backslash training backslash FASD. Maybe it's forward slash. I'm not sure. Whatever the slashes are. But just go to justicefororphansny.org and you'll find it all there. You can also check out my book about our family's kinship and Ukrainian adoption journey. Uh, my award-winning book, Orphans No More, A Journey Back to the Father, available wherever you buy books. And if you would like a signed copy, you can grab that from my website, sandraflock.com uh, and I'd like to give a shout out and so would my dog apparently if you can hear Liberty in the background um, we want to give a shout out to our county sponsors who help JFO do what we do in caring for children and families in crisis and that would be Tri-Nuclear Corporation Bishop Boundary Construction, National Bank of Cooksaki, and Cullman Insurance Agency. Be sure to find and follow Justice for Orphans on both Facebook and Instagram. You can find me there too at Sandra Flack. I am grateful that you have spent your valuable time with me today, and I'm thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.